You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. Um, the focal passage is John 18, 1 through 11. It will be on the screen. You can also turn in your Bibles. If you do need a Bible, you can go to the Connect desk and they will get you hooked up with one. All right, John 18, 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and the disciple, his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated, and any children here can be dismissed to their classes. Love you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village. It's good to see you guys. This morning, thanks for gathering with us. Um, today, we're continuing uh, where we've been in John. Been in John for a long time, and we are making a bit of a transition today in this story because the last few weeks we've spent lots of time listening to Jesus as he talks, kind of gives some final departing words to his followers, um, praise for his disciples as well, and even for the future of the church. And now we're kind of like hitting on that part where it's, it's turning now to actually him beginning to uh, depart. And so on, uh, on the 2023 calendar, church calendar stuff, this week, this Sunday actually begins Holy Week. Uh, it's known as Palm Sunday. And so there are other churches and, uh, and stuff celebrating this day as well as the beginning of a week where we look at and remember specifically the arrest and betrayal, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so We will be uh, celebrating that stuff here uh, this coming weekend, uh, this coming Friday. Good Friday gathering from 7 to 8 p.m. here uh, at the 210. We'll be remembering uh, and reflecting on the death of Jesus for us. And on Easter Sunday, uh, normal time of of 10.30 a.m., we'll be here celebrating all the more the resurrection of Jesus. And we'll continue through John's story where we leave off today uh, on Good Friday and Easter Sunday uh, as well. All that said, uh, man, it's kind of fitting that, that today we begin Holy Week uh, with his arrest, with his, uh, like a confrontation in a garden that will, again, kind of put on track his departure from his friends. But before we hop into uh, this stuff, let's just pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for the people who have gathered here. Um, 
This morning is yours. Uh, these people in this room, uh, they are yours as well. And we would just invite you to do what you will with us um, today. As we reflect on the scripture that we read, as we dig into what you would have us know, um, Father, I pray that unlike Judas uh, in this passage, who was known and referred to time and time again as uh, who was the betrayer, God, that we would not hinge some identifying mark to our name and to who we are as a betrayer, as good enough, as not good enough, as defiled, as shameful, as guilty, as perfect or better than or whatever. God, I pray that the people in this room, men and women and kids, that we would identify ourselves this morning when we leave here as whoever we are, son and daughter of God, loved, cherished, freed, righteous by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Would you help us to find our identity and our freedom in that today, um, that we would believe you when you say, let them go, that that goes for us too. Father, we thank you for your word. Thanks for good news that we get to bring to bear on lives because of Jesus. Uh, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, <clears throat> my kids' bedtime, uh, it's like my favorite time of the night, which maybe some of you would say, oh, that's every parent's favorite time of the night when the kids go to bed. Uh, a little bit different for me. That is true in some sense, but, but I love our kids' bedtime because like stuff just slows down and it's quiet. There's no screens. Stuff's just kind of chill. Lights are dim. And so we just get to sit there like with our three boys, they share a room and, and two girls who share a room. We just get to sit and talk. We get to read together pray together. They get to like share stuff. Things eat, like eke out of them that don't come out in like the hustle and bustle of normal everyday life. And so get to hear some stuff that's going on inside their heads and their hearts. And it's just a sweet time to connect uh, and, and to pray together and end the night usually with some semblance of peace. Uh, it doesn't happen every night, but most nights. Last Saturday, uh, I, I go up to, to tell our boys goodnight. Um, the lights are already off, like it's pitch black up there, which is abnormal. Usually they've got like a lamp on and all that. And I'm, I'm thinking like, gosh, it's weird. Maybe, I, maybe it took me longer to go upstairs that night and, and they're just all conked out. It's been a long day or whatever because usually they're playing with Legos or reading a book or Holden's reading like a joke book to the twins uh, or whatnot. And so I get to the top of the stairs, I, I flip on a light um, and like everything's neat and tidy, but I don't see any kids. Like there's no boys up there. And I'm looking at the beds, and there's no, like, boy-shaped lumps underneath blankets or anything anywhere. It's just neat, and tidy tops of the bed are so flat. And so, okay, oh, I'm thinking, all right, they're hiding, because they do that sometimes. Sometimes they come up, and they're, like, hiding somewhere. They want me to find them or whatever. And so I take, like, two more steps into the room, and I say, all right, guys, where are you at? But before I can even, like, get the words out, I hear a thump. And all of a sudden, I'm, like, hit in the chest with a, a Nerf dart, right? <laughs> and then another thump. And then another Nerf dart or whatever, and then Joshua like appears out of the ether, and he's got his uh, stuffed alligator alley swinging it by the tail, and he just leaps up and like cracks me right in the stomach or whatever. And so I knew at that point I, was, I had walked into an, an, an ambush. Uh, that is what had just happened. Uh, and I didn't see it coming. I literally like, I, I, I still don't know exactly where they were. They had, they, had clean, they had cleaned their room. They had cleaned out under their beds and under like some desks and stuff they have up there. It's just one big room. It's a Cape Cod. And they had created a series of tunnels that go all the way around their room where you can't see them. They built like blinds somewhere in there for like, like Nerf gun stuff and everything else. And so I don't know where they learned that from. It wasn't from Bluey. My guess is uh, they've been hanging out with Wes Vandenbark in Kayville too long. <laughs> And that's where that came from. And so 
I don't know. Thanks for that, Wes. Uh, Holden asked me for a, a rating. Oh, how would you rate that ambush? And I was like, God, 10 out of 10, right? 10 out of 10, you earned it. Um, so if you see him today, like, you can give him kudos. Say, good job on guerrilla warfare, whatever that was. Um, but what you can't tell him, what you can't tell him is, is this, that even when all three of them were like sitting on top of me and clearly winning the fight, uh, what you can't tell them is that I could have won if I wanted to. You can't tell them that. You gotta let them have the win, all right? I, but I was in control of the situation. Uh, I was an only kid, which you might think would make me soft in some ways, but it just means I've been preparing my whole life for this moment where I get to come on top of a Nerf war right in a kid's bedroom. I could have uh, been my time to shine, but I, I just kind of let him have that. And what we're going to see today is that uh, just like I was maybe a little bit more in control of the situation than my kids thought, uh, eventually at least, um, Jesus is entirely in control of a much more dire situation between him and his enemies and his disciples, and no one really knows it. A trap has been set for him, and not only does Jesus walk into it, but, but he sees it coming. And it's going to seem like he's letting his enemies win in the moment, but in the big scheme of things, he's really just letting them defeat themselves. And that's what we'll explore a bit today. Our, our main idea for this morning as we go through this text is that even the best laid traps fall victim to God's better plan of redemption. And so if you would, uh, we'll read through the first three verses of our passage today. John 18, 1 through 3. Uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, which was really everything le- leading up from like verse or chapter 14 to 17, when he had spoken these words, uh, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons." Our first point this morning is this, that the accuser will always be armed. Uh, all right, so set the scene a bit. Um, Jesus and his disciples, they had been hanging out. They've been eating. Uh, they've been talking, praying together. They decided to go out for a bit. It was the time of the Passover feast, right? So there's a lot of people in town from all over, but there are also rules about where you could and couldn't go. They had to stay within um, certain limits of the city and the temple the night before the feast in order to be uh, ritually, ceremonially clean and to participate in all the festivities. So they stayed close. They went to this garden uh, that they'd been to a million times together. It was called Gethsemane. Uh, We learned that from some of the other accounts of this night. And this garden it was probably walled, uh, right? Like when we say that they entered the garden, it wasn't like they walked through the mulch or whatever, or walked through the shrubs. Like there was probably a, a wall and then an entrance, one or two to get in and out of the garden. And that'll make a difference uh, in a few minutes. Um, and it was filled with these like old, gnarled olive trees. They would uh, gather and they would press olives for oil uh, right there. And so it's a pretty sweet spot. Like, uh, it, was, it was nighttime. Uh, because of the way that the Jewish calendar works, we know that there was a full moon uh, that night, all right? So, uh, so as you're picturing this scene in your mind, uh, and really the next few times that we look at, at John, like on Good Friday uh, and, on, and on Sunday, like we get to have this picture in, in our minds of what's going on. Uh, a, a group of well-fed guys with a, a few sips of wine in them, hanging out in this like gnarly wooded garden at night, cast under the light in the shadows of a full moon and the scent of freshly pressed olives 
hanging in the air. And if you don't know what that smells like, just imagine Olive Garden uh, minus the breadsticks in Alfredo. That's probably what it, what it smells like. Uh, but this place is, is the place that Jesus wanted to take his friends to. Uh, on what he knew was going to be like their last night together. He wanted to go to somewhere familiar, somewhere meaningful, somewhere sacred, not just sacred because it was within uh, the sanctified area of the city, but also sacred because it was like their spot, like, like talking, praying, laughing, learning over the years within these walls, sitting up against you know, these trees. This was like their spot. And there were a few meetings that I had scheduled for this week, and we confirmed like days and times, but we just didn't confirm where. We just didn't say where we were meeting, but, but that's because like we all just knew where we were going, right? And so, hey, uh, meet this day, this time, or whatever. Didn't say a thing. We just both showed up at True West, right? Or both showed up at the Fringe or Coffee Cup Overflowing or wherever we were. Like those places have become our spots, and so we don't even have to say it out loud to know like where we're going to be which is a really sweet thing, right, until someone uses that against you, which is exactly what Judas does to Jesus here. This sacred space for the Passover and the sacred space of friendship and discipleship and safety and intimacy with the Lord where Judas had been a million times before it was now going to be defiled by the, by the betrayal of a former friend and the footsteps of soldiers and the rattling of swords, and the smell, and the, and the bouncing light of torches coming through the garden. It's not just a public disturbance, right, of some nice, peaceful, quiet night. By leading dozens, if not more, soldiers, officers to this quiet garden in the middle of the night, Judas was violating the very friendship he had with Jesus in the first place. He used his closeness with him against him. There's this uh, rock I have up here with me today. Some of you know what this is, some of you don't, and I'll come back to it in a minute. But uh, it is, it's April 2nd, uh, and in April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, which the village has recognized in lots of ways uh, over the years. And the second year that we did something together as a church, um, I got to process some of my experiences for the, for the first time uh, in a new light, and it was tough, but it was fruitful. Um, and I'll spare the story, especially for the sake of you who are sensitive Heart rates might be rising or whatever, but um, while I was protected from physical harm, like I realized there were a few men in my life, and really one in particular, who his interest in me when I was younger, uh, shared interests and generosity and attention and affection over years as my teacher, as the, my boss, and what I thought was a friend, it wasn't what I thought it was. What I experienced is friendship or care Someone to look up to, like ever since he was arrested, I've had to recognize that that relationship was something else altogether. And that alone, just the relational aspect of it, it messes with a person. Some of you know that. The wound of betrayal, at least for me, is, is that I was sought after and I was seen fully in all of my insecurities. As a young Scott, all my weaknesses, all my hopes for what I wanted with the intent of being used selfishly. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas knew Jesus, and he used that knowledge for his own gain. A little bit of fame, a few pieces of silver. Judas, up until a little bit ago, was one of those disciples eating at the same table 
serving alongside the same people, listening to the same sermons, casting out the same demons. He oversaw the finances. He seemed to take his job pretty seriously. He was one of the 12 until suddenly he wasn't. And now he's not alone. He's brought religious officers and Roman soldiers, Jews and Gentiles, like a microcosm of the world with him, armed with the weapons of the world to bring Jesus down in a place that was once sacred. I know that betrayal runs through some of your stories, a lot of your stories in places that should have been sacred spaces, family or friendship, school, churches. And what betrayal does, it seems to defile not just those specific spaces, but those kinds of spaces. It can make other friendships harder, other family stuff harder, new churches and new schools and new people harder to let them know which gardens you like to go to let alone invite them to accompany you there. Heck, it can make us feel defiled, us. Betrayal is, is part of many of our stories, and it's part of Jesus' story, and so it's worth talking about it for a few minutes this morning because chances are your accusers, the accusers in your life, they're not going to be armed with swords and torches, but they will be armed with lies that are really easy for us to believe. And so we get to consider a few things that are true this morning, and first is this, that God was betrayed. Betrayal hurts. Um, there are real wounds and real things that have to happen to pursue real healing, and that's enough on its own, but one of the hardest things about betrayal is the accusation that we deserved it, <laughs> that we should have stopped it, that we probably had it come into us, right? That accusation might come from the mouths of other people, it might come from TikTok, it might come from books that we read or, or whatever. It might also come from your own head, from your own flesh and trying to make sense of what happened and why. It can find the simplest answer to be, well, I guess I did something wrong or maybe I am something wrong. The Lord is holy. Jesus is perfect without blemish, without fault, without failure. There is nothing in him that deserves a bait and switch or a public arrest, or an undercover sting. He didn't deserve to be betrayed, and yet he was. Jesus is the light, and he wasn't betrayed because the light was bad. He was betrayed because darkness hated the light. Jesus' betrayal says nothing about Jesus and everything about Judas. And it might be true that your betrayal says nothing about you, and everything about the one who betrayed you. Look, we don't, we don't read the Bible and put ourselves in the place of Jesus. Like, that's a, that is a dangerous way to go about reading the Bible. But we do get to recognize that Jesus put himself in our place, right? In friendships, close friendships, in a community where some loved him and some hated him and some didn't know kind of what to do with him and some even pretended to love him but really hated him in the end. And the pain and the confusion and the hardship that came from all that stuck with Jesus. But the accusation that Jesus deserved it, that doesn't stick at all. Not for a second. He'll be asked a lot of questions in the coming hours ahead in his story. While he's on trial, while he might be found guilty, right? The guilt that he takes on his shoulders was never his. It was always the guilt of others, of ours, right? Those of us in this room who have done the betraying. And here's the thing. He's the only one who gets to assume or absorb the guilt that really belongs to other people and have that be a righteous thing. We, we don't have to do that. 
We don't get to do that. That's the unique role of Jesus in our life because God himself was betrayed. The accusation that we deserve betrayal, that doesn't have to stick. Number two is this, that God loves the betrayed. Despite feeling defiled in some way, betrayal doesn't make us unlovable. Right? God the Father loves God the Son before this moment, during this moment, after this moment, and he loves those of you in this room who have been, are being, or will be betrayed down the road. And here's the beautiful thing. He's not loving you from a distance. He's not trying to love you as best he can despite not being able to get it. Right? The Lord will never say to you in your moments of deepest hurt, oh man, like, I'm sorry, I just can't imagine how you feel right now. He can imagine how you feel because he has felt the exact same way. He knows how to love you well in those moments because he has suffered through those moments, Father, Son, and Spirit together without ever having been threatened, right, in their intimacy or relationship or love for one another. It's another false accusation, another weapon of the world that betrayal makes you unlovable, Because in this very story, we see the lengths to which Jesus would go to 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 let you know that he does, in fact, love you. He will let himself be betrayed and suffer and die if it means neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else and all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's really good news. The wrong lesson that I could have learned and did learn and I'm still trying to unlearn today because of some of the men in my life is that if I was seen fully for who I was, then at worst, I would be taken advantage of and at best, I would simply be left alone, unloved or unlovable. But the gospel tells me that's not true. And so uh, on this rock from way back when, uh, the, the second year that we did some stuff for Sexual Assault Awareness Month, I wrote this, I wrote, Seen fully, loved deeply. Can't read that, but that is what it says up here. Because that's what's true. That's what's true in Christ, even when it's hard to believe it. Number three is this. God is not the betrayer. If you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke's accounts on this night, there's a, there's a particular focus they have on Jesus' anguish and agony in the garden as he's praying to the Father and preparing to suffer. Luke says that uh, being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It was a hard night for Jesus. But John doesn't focus on that part of Jesus' night. Not because it didn't happen, but because John wants to emphasize that even though this whole thing was difficult, Jesus isn't caught off guard. Just like Just like my Nerf ambush last weekend, Jesus is actually in control of what's about to happen here. And not just because he knows what's about to happen, but in some way, he has been here before. God and his people in a garden where a snake slithers his way in. It's not an accident that John's writing, like his gospel begins with an echo of the opening lines of the Bible. And it is not an accident that there's deception and betrayal interrupting the sacred space of a garden here that will lead to someone be letting, uh, being led out of that garden under the weight of certain death. And if you're familiar with Genesis 1 through 3, that should sound familiar. And if it doesn't, just know this, that Jesus is showing up to succeed and be the hero where humanity once failed. But when life's hard and, and betrayal hits, 
or any kind of suffering strikes us, it's easy to think that God has abandoned us. He has left us high and drier, or if in fact, uh, maybe the bad guy. He might be the bad guy in our story, that he could do something, but he won't do it. That he's good, but not to us. Maybe he has in some way betrayed us because either we deserved what happened to us or we deserve to be left alone because we don't deserve his love or we deserve love and we didn't deserve what happened and God's the one who turned his back on us. And this happens when we forget that it's not just us and God in the garden. There is a snake. When evil strikes, when suffering happens, when sin seems to win, it is a natural thing for us to wonder why and to want something to direct some righteous anger towards. But when it's just us and Jesus in the garden, our options are pretty limited with how we answer those questions. Blame ourselves, blame the people around us, even our friends, blame the Lord. But there is a snake. There is an enemy. John explicitly said all along that Satan is moving this whole plane with Judas forward. Like, just like he, he set in motion the deception of Adam and Eve and how they betrayed the Lord in their garden. We often forget it. But there, there are more than two powers at play in this life. There is the Lord, there's us, and there is the enemy whose greatest weapons are often his absence from our minds and the accusations of guilt and shame and condemnation that we are so quick to make towards one another and the Lord and ourselves, like he just gets to sit back and he gets to watch the world burn. Uh, I wrote this during that April a few years back, um, taking some notes and stuff. I, I wrote this. I said, it's a really bad idea to measure God's grace or his presence or his goodness in our lives by the evil that others have or haven't done to us. And that's still true. There are good, honest questions of God's sovereignty and goodness and how all that plays out in a world where bad things happen, especially, especially when those bad things happen to us or people that we love. And yet those questions should always include the role of an enemy who does have power here and now. And those questions always get to include this garden, the second garden where God himself shows up to reverse and to repair and to redeem our betrayal of him under the deception of his enemy. God is not the betrayer. He is the one who was betrayed first by us in the first garden and now by Judas. And every time under the sway of a spiritual snake that we can't see, but that is very much alive and working in the world. And God has once again come to a garden a symbol of his sacred space with us to prove to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is safe and that he is for us and that he is in control of a thing that is out of our hands. The betrayer, the snake, the enemy always comes armed, not usually with swords, but with accusations, sometimes in the most personal of places and the most intimate of relationships with the lies that are easiest for us to believe, especially when we've been betrayed. Just like betrayal is, is part of our story, it's also part of Jesus' story, but, but also like our story, betrayal isn't the end of Jesus' story either. And so read on with me in John 18, four through six. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? 
They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Point two is this, that the righteous can step forward. These points get uh, uh, increasingly smaller. All right, so just in case you're wondering and keeping track of time, the third point is basically a conclusion. All right, so look, right after the, uh, the Nerf ambush my kids pulled off, Last weekend, Holden confessed to me. He was like, um, like, after we all got into our places and we're all ready to go, like, we were really afraid that mommy might come up before you did. Because <laughs> they weren't sure how mom would respond to like, being ambushed or whatever. And that's not because she's not fun. It's because she's competitive, all right? <laughs> and so they probably know that like, she wouldn't go down without a fight. She would probably win that ambush, all right? She would not let them win uh, that evening. Uh, they're not laying the trap. She is the trap. This is kind of the, the thing there. Uh, and in this passage, like you get the impression that not all of the soldiers and all the other folks who came out to arrest Jesus that night exactly knew who they were trying to take down. Like they were armed with swords. Like they easily outnumbered Jesus and his disciples and they were coming with the authority of both the government and the religious establishment behind them. Now because of like the big crowds at Passover in the city, the Romans were probably trying to like just quell any like uh, possibility of riot or upheaval in the city that could cause a lot of trouble. Like, but, but if you know Jesus, you know you, like, you don't have to bring a sword, let alone a small army. Jesus has never tried to mount an armed assault or a violent revolution of any kind at all. But they came with the weapons of the world anyway, the strength of the world, the authority of the world to make sure that he came peacefully. And yet the craziest thing happens. Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's like, that's me. And the whole company of, of soldiers and officers, including Jesus, they fall down as if it takes them off guard. Like, oh, shoot, we thought dad was coming upstairs, right? But it's mom, you know, like, like all the stuff that I read about this, none of it suggests that they're consciously realizing, oh, this is God in the flesh. Like, that's not what's going on in their brains because it would be really weird to have like such a tangible realization, oh, this is God, right? Let's arrest him anyway. Right, that's probably not how that played out. And nothing that I read suggests this was a case of like a clumsy soldier right, tripping over his boots or whatever and like domino effect, everyone else just falls behind him. Like that's, that's not what's happening either. John's clearly saying that because Jesus stepped forward and said, that's me, everyone hit the ground. And so we could spend all day speculating, but that's not what we're gonna do. What I wanna do is to take John and his word that this was some sort of supernatural staggering brought on by Jesus' own confession of who he was. And he kind of followed through with this garden Genesis thing he's got going on. And so here's two little subpoints for this one point. Uh, first, that the righteous have power. The righteous have power, even over their accusers. I almost made this point that the righteous don't have to fear they're accusers, and, and while that's true in some sense, there are situations in, in which people in the right like, do have to be afraid of what people may do or, or whatever when they say something or step forward and confess what's true about who they are or what's been done or what they've done or not done. And, and in fact, that's true in Jesus' situation. He has something to worry about. Which is why we don't like just get to say that the righteous have, uh, which is why we get to say that the righteous do have power over their accusers, a power that can overcome fear. They can coexist, right? But that power can overcome it. And it may not be immediately felt. It may not bear fruit in the world, right? But it's a power that can't be taken away no matter what. And that power is the power to confess who they are and what is true. Now, in Jesus' case, like, 
his power was ultimate, right? He's literally God in the flesh. But Jesus, Jesus has a lot to be afraid of by stepping forward. Jesus, again, was in such agony while praying in the garden. He was sweating as if he was bleeding precisely because he knew that stepping forward meant being falsely accused, suffering, shame, death. He had a lot to be afraid of by stepping forward. And yet that fear wasn't the thing that was driving him in the garden. Something else was. He was probably still sweating. His clothes probably had like stains of sweat, maybe tears on them when in the face of of an orderly-ish mob, he confidently asserted, come and get me. Now, we don't take Jesus' example here like where he's willing to give his life for ours. We don't take that as a one-to-one mirror of what we should always do in every situation, not throwing ourselves in harm's way. Like Jesus isn't calling us to be reckless, but he is demonstrating the power that can come from being righteous. Nothing to hide before the Lord that we wouldn't own up to, right? That like nothing could be exposed that would rightly condemn us in the eyes of the Lord, that nothing would change our ultimate destiny and identity if it was dragged into a courtroom or into God's throne room or just plastered all over social media. Jesus was in agony over what was to come that night, but John was making it clear that agony wasn't driving him. His clean conscience and his confidence in his righteousness, like as the only righteous one before the Lord, that is what's driving Jesus in this garden. And it might not spare him from suffering. In fact, we, we know it doesn't. It might not spare him from harm and, and ridicule from the world. It might not spare him from being stripped of whatever worldly dignity that he had left, but it would spare him from living his life as if his betrayal was the end of his story. He knows it's not. There's a power that his accusers cannot take away from him, no matter how hard the road ahead. It would be for the joy that was set before him that Jesus would step forward and endure the cross and despise the shame that wasn't rightly his to bear because he knew that his story ended at the right hand of the throne of God in glory. He knows that's where his story ends. And so he said with sweat on his brow and confidence in his voice, I'm the guy that you're looking for. And that supernaturally staggering thing, that's what, that's what our second thing is here, is that the power to confess is supernaturally staggering. In the first garden, way back in Genesis with Adam and Eve, Right after they had been tricked by Satan into betraying the Lord, Adam and Eve did the opposite of Jesus here. They hid. They covered up all the parts they didn't want seen, and they hid at the sound of the Lord walking nearby in the cool of the day because they were not righteous. They were not in the right before the Lord or one another. Fear was the thing that was driving them away from one another and the presence of the God who made them, even though he had been nothing but good to them. And we do the same thing today. We hide from the Lord. We hide from one another and we wait. We wait until we get personally, explicitly like called out for stuff before we admit sometimes to who we really are or what we've really done. And even then, like we wanna make a, a find a, a million excuses, right? For, for why we are that way or why we did that thing. We pass responsibility on to the next closest thing. The blame game, that thing goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve hiding from God, God calling out Adam, Adam blaming Eve, Eve blaming the snake, and us living under the curse of that pattern that has continued in our relationships with each and every generation since, including us. But Jesus interrupts this pattern. He interrupts this. He is God in the garden again, walking in the cool of the evening. 
this time with his people. And before the accuser ever slithers his way to them, Jesus steps forward in between the snake and his people and having never been deceived, not giving into fear. And in his righteousness, he breaks the habits of Adam and Eve and confesses exactly who he is to the ones who wish him the worst. And it literally knocks them to the ground. Jesus' accusers literally can't stand at an honest confession of one who is righteous before God, even if they don't know it yet. And that power to step forward and stagger the powers of darkness, to catch the snake off guard, like he gives that to us. The moment that we confess our need for him and stand before him, not in self-righteousness, but in Jesus' righteousness that he wants to freely clothe us with, he gives us the ability to confess who we are and all we've done before the holiest of gods and the worst of our accusers. And in the end, nothing will stick except the endless love of the Lord. And we don't do that once just the first time that we believe. We get to do that every day and every time that we come clean, every time we step forward, every time we live in light of what's true about us in Christ and say, here I am, whether we are in the right or whether we are in the wrong, the darkness draws back. It trips over itself. Because the guilt and the shame and the fear that it brought to the fight, none of it holds a candle to the light of Jesus the righteous one whose protective voice drowns out every accusation from every time that we've been betrayed or done the betraying when he says, let them go. Which is what happens next. Let's read the next little bit here. We'll wrap up. John 18, seven through 11. So Jesus asked them again, uh, whom do you seek? As they're like laying on the ground. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, love Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, poor guy. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is Point three in our conclusion, that God's, uh, that the Lord's, sorry, will always go free. Apparently, uh, one of my six-year-old boys has a better aim with a stuffed alligator than, than Peter did with a small sword, right? Or a dagger or whatever. Like, unless Peter was trying to go for the ear, it's not like a lethal blow uh, or whatever. I'm pretty sure he missed the target. Our best guess is that Peter was actually like swinging for the head, right? And he's just a buffoon and he just missed, right? Which is like, you know, whatever. That's... Again, poor Malchus, uh, the servant of the high priest. That might seem a little dramatic for Peter to do in the moment, but A, like, that's, that's kind of Peter's thing, right, is being a little overreactive to stuff sometimes. And B, like, they were being ganged up on, like, in a garden that only had one way, uh, maybe two ways out, and this mob was wanting to drag their friend and their teacher and their savior away to be put on trial. And so Peter, in a very Peter kind of way, like, was simply trying to stick up for Jesus if he was honest, he was probably scared. He was afraid in that moment. Everybody was scared. The soldiers drew back and fell, likely in fear. The disciples were also afraid of what was about to happen. The only person who wasn't letting fear lead them was Jesus. Because as we've already said, Jesus was way more in control of this moment than anybody thought. In fact, this is the part of the story when both Satan and Judas 
and the Pharisees and, and the high priest officials, everyone who hated Jesus and wished that he was gone, this is the point in the story where they think they are winning, right? The, the trapsman set this guy, he's given up, we've got this in the bag, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Because by letting Jesus take the rap for his people, by, by condemning him for things that he never did, his betrayers and accusers are helping him fulfill the very thing that he was sent to accomplish. The liberation of his people from the power of sin and the free promise of eternal life for all who would believe. John even includes this little note that Jesus bartered for the freedom of his disciples in order to fulfill what he had said a chapter ago in his prayer to the Father. He's not just like quoting Old Testament stuff anymore. He's just quoting himself, right? Referring to himself from earlier that same night in order that his disciples and us who are reading this today might be able to see that he is in control. Remember that, guys? Like, and he was. How else can you explain like why after a horribly attempted murder with a small sword, how can you explain that Peter wasn't put in handcuffs? Why wasn't he arrested that night? God's people, one of whom was guilty of literally doing something right then and right there, attempted murder, who also defiled the garden and himself. That night, he got to go free. Whether it's Adam and Eve, Judas and some soldiers, Peter and the disciples, you and me, we make a mess of the place that God puts us in. We sin, right? And we live in the wake of sin. We are the, the cause of the curse and we live under the curse. We entered the first garden that God planted for us and we defiled it. But here, God entered a second garden that we planted and he sanctified it. He made what was once a sacred place for him and his friends even more sacred that night, despite what both his enemies and his friends had just done to defile it because Jesus was working even this best laid trap of his enemy so it would fall victim to God's better plan of redemption. Instead of kicking us out of this garden too, Jesus would let himself be led out of it in chains so that we might go free. Not just one time on one night, but every day of our lives. I said earlier, it's like really not a good idea to like put ourselves in the place of Jesus in the scriptures. And that's true. In this part of Jesus' story, there are two groups of people besides Jesus. They're both scared. And they both draw swords. And they both ultimately want to keep Jesus from doing what he set out to do. The mob hated Jesus and wanted to stop him by killing him. Peter loved Jesus, but wanted to stop him from being killed. And if you're wondering who you are or who you'd be in this story, you're on one of those sides. You're in one of those groups. And Jesus' invitation to both sides, believer and skeptic, Christian and not, is to sheathe your sword and let Jesus step forward before your accusers, be that Satan or your enemies, even your own conscience, maybe people that you thought were your friends, and let him barter for your freedom with his life before the Lord. If you're not a Christian this morning, like today, you can be among the Lords that get to go free. He's not a threat to you. Despite what you've heard, despite what you've believed or what you've been told, what you've told yourself because of your story maybe, like because of where he's been or not been in your story from what you think, 
what you think you should have done or not done in your life, I'm not sure what would make you draw your sword against Jesus and say, for my life, I need to get rid of this guy. I need to, to stop him from going any further. But what I know is that despite your best efforts, and despite the best efforts of this band of soldiers and officers in this garden, he died for you anyway. He stood in the gap between you and every accusation of guilt and shame, rightly or wrongly thrown at you and said, let me take that and let them go free even while you have your sword in your hand. You can be among the Lord's. Sheathe it. And if you are a Christian this morning, then you are among the Lord's and you need to know that like nothing is a threat to Jesus, right? Not the enemies out there, not the sin in here, not the shame you carry or the guilt that you heap. Not even you are a threat to Jesus or the freedom and forgiveness and life that he has promised you. Ha, but what about, what about this thing? What about what I thought? What about, like, no, like that's not it. You've forgotten that he is in control. He fulfilled his own words. He proved that he was faithful, not when things were looking really good, right? But in those moments when things were looking bad and his disciples were freaked out. And so listen, like we know the end of the story. His betrayal isn't the end and neither is yours. Betrayal done against you, your betrayal to someone else, your betrayal against the Lord. That's not the end of your story. We're not living in the first garden anymore. Let Jesus break the habits that you learned from Adam and Eve by letting the righteousness of Jesus cover you instead of whatever fig leaves, whatever stuff that you happen to sew and stitch together. Your self-righteousness, your self-righteousness will not bring you closer to Jesus. In fact, it's probably a sign that you're trying to hide something from him, that you are trying to hide from him. But in Christ, because he stepped forward first, you also get to step forward this morning and let yourself be fully seen and deeply loved by the Lord. And it's not a trap. It's part of God's better plan of redemption. The band can come on up at this point in time. I just want to invite you, whatever, whichever of those two groups you find yourself in this morning, maybe not even sure, like ask the Lord what he might be stirring and sifting in you this morning. There are some tangible ways for you to respond. First is communion, which we have up here. It's bread and juice. The bread represents the blood of Christ, or sorry, the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us on the cross, and the juice represents the, the, the blood of Jesus that he shed for us on the cross. What he gave up for you, him offering his life in your place that you might go free. Right? That's what this symbolizes up here. And every time we get to partake, it is a declaration, man, that it is in Jesus that we find our freedom and our peace and our hope and the, and the uh, beginning rid of our guilt and shame, all of those things. All right? And so if you're not a believer this morning, this isn't for you because you're not declaring that yet. If you are a believer, this is for you after you've sat and, and prayed and reflected and repented and responded. There are some uh, questions up on the screen that will help you do that. If you're not a believer in here this morning, while this table might not be for you, Jesus is for you, and I would love to chat with you about that. Us, we would love to talk with you about that. There'll be some folks by uh, that red tree back, back there who wanna pray with you and for you, whether you know Jesus or not, no matter what's going on in your life, I'll be back against that wall as well. If I can pray with you or talk with you about something, would love to do that. If you wanna trust Jesus and step forward following him in front of you for the first time, would love to come up and take communion with you for the very first time this morning. The band will play some music. 
uh, for us. You can respond through song. You can respond by just sitting in your seats and praying if you want to as well. But take the next few minutes, consider what the Lord is stirring in you, and respond accordingly.